Hi everyone, I'm Tara Lon. Welcome to Time Out with Tinseltown Mom. This will be the last podcast episode of 2021. So as a little treat, I've compiled my top seven segments. I'm gonna share a little clip from each of those episodes from various doctors and experts just giving their best parenting advice and best tips. Now, if you're interested in hearing the entire episode for each segment, you can head on over to my show notes and I will have a link for each full segment. We're gonna start off with Dr. Bethany Cook talking about the different parenting styles. Hopefully you get some valuable information from this episode and I will see you in 2022. Yeah, that's more in Western society, right? That's a different type of parenting style. Can you just quickly explain those differences again, just so people are aware of, you know, what category they might fall in? Absolutely. So authoritarian parenting uh, is you follow a strict set of rules, uh, regulations, your expectations are high, but your the love and the feedback you give is very, very low. You're very non-responsive to your children um, in, in an authoritarian type of parenting setting. And so uh, tiger parents, they also have those high expectations, but they also use some level of positive parenting. So, you know, they're going to go out of their way to protect their children from any obstacles, and they're going to do it with warmth and support. Whereas authoritarian type of parent, they're just like, dude, this is life. If, you know, these are tough knocks, you're going to learn the hard way. I'm going to toughen you up for the world. I don't care. I'm never going to tell you I love you. I'm not going to say I'm proud of you. None of that. And mm. so those are the two differences between those two. And authoritarian parenting does not yield happy, healthy children. Okay. Now, does tiger parenting yield happy, healthy children? So it can. So some of the, the pros of tiger parenting um, is that, you know, the child has a, incredible self-discipline. If they want to learn to do something, they can force themselves to do it. Off the, you know, to the other side of that sword <laughs> is anxiety you know, overexhaustion because you're so focused and trying so hard to do something that maybe is out of your wheelhouse or it maybe just isn't necessary, but it's a self-discipline that I must do it. So there's a pro for children. They're very, there's a lot of self-discipline. Um, however, they are living in constant fear of punishments. Um, one of the other pros of tiger parenting is that it helps children kind of really see what their true potential is. You know, sometimes we feel children, they see limits or they don't see where they could go or they see their friends not being pushed. And as with anyone, if we have somebody cheerleading behind us who's supportive, who offers us love, even if, you know, it's in a somewhat strict and harsh manner, um, we're going to succeed and we're going to reach our truest potential. So that's another pro of tiger parenting. Um, And then the last pro that I see often is that children tend to be really responsible, um, and contribute positively to society. You know, it's, um, they're usually not delinquents. They're often children raised by tiger parents. You don't necessarily see them in jail um, or forensic settings. Uh, Authoritarian uh, children, you will often see in jail or um, in trouble at school a lot. There's just a lack of respect. They've not gotten respect from their parents at home because there's a lack of love that the tiger parent has. it, it's children just, you know, if you grow up and nobody loves you and you, you're told you never do anything right, you're going to be a pretty unhappy person and you're going to have a difficult time finding respect for anybody, especially authority figures, because they've always treated you poorly. So it, it's not a huge leap to see how authoritarian parents can result in children who end up in 
the system of delinquency and corrections. And Tiger Parents, whilst the approach is similar, that it's so important to a child to feel loved and accepted and they're guided. You know, they're going to guide them. So those are the pros of uh, Tiger Parenting. They do come with some cons. I don't know if you want to talk about those now. Oh, yeah. No, this is perfect. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the cons. Um. So because parents set really high expectations, the children often feel an incredible uh, amount of anxiety and stress. They feel overburdened and a lot of pressure. And this results in uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression. Uh, There's high rates of suicide among children of tiger parents. Uh, Another con is that a child becomes so fearful of making mistakes that they avoid kind of going out there and trying because they fear that the punishment is going to be so harsh if, it, if they can't do it properly the first time. Um, the fear of perfectionism hinders that growth. And that's kind of similar to what I'm talking. If you're not able to go out there and try, because if you can't be perfect the first time, which nobody is, you know, we need mistakes are just chances to get it done right. It's never right. a failure. Right. But if that's the perception, then you're not going to try. And then it kind of hinders some growth. Um, let's see. You know, if you live under the content constant guidance of your parents, you actually don't develop really good coping skills for emotional regulation, for managing relationships. You don't learn the back and forth balance of asserting uh, for yourself, saying what you need, because somebody's always there kind of saying it and doing it for you ahead of time. So there's some poor coping skills for managing emotional distress. Um, Let me think. Those are, you know, oh, and creativity. Another big one is there's a lack of creativity because you're, if it's just rigorous, you know, if you think about academics and music, music's pretty structured. So if you have to learn the basis of theory, notes, (laughs) all of that and the musical instrument before you can start to create your own or potentially compose your own music. Um, So if you're a tiger parent, your child's not going to be very creative. Um, Or they tend to be less creative because they're forced to follow specific rules. And if they don't follow the rules, they get punished. So you automatically stop thinking outside of the box. All you want to do is to fit that box and fit it so well that you avoid being shamed, um, you know, whatever punishment parents incorporate to get your child to cooperate. So here's it's funny. I just said that. And I thought so I was taught the Suzuki method of violin starting when I was seven years old. And the Suzuki method is a specific method you play by ear. It, you know, started in um, Eastern cultures. And I remember when I was playing, I was probably, I was seven. And I, it's hard to kind of explain on the phone, but when you hold the neck of the violin, sometimes your wrists can collapse and it will touch the body of the violin. So one method of getting children, I actually had this done to me, to stop doing that is, is the teacher will push a tack through a piece of masking tape and then tape that onto the violin body in a space so that if while you're trying to learn your fingering, if your wrist collapse, the edge of your wrist will hit the tack hmm. and it hurts. Mm-hmm. It's obviously not going to cut your wrist, but it's a way, you know, it's kind of, some might say it's harsh to teach a child to keep their wrists straight. It's effective. It works. I didn't bleed. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. it's a, it is a very specific focused. I don't want you to do this. Stop doing it. This is the result of that. Mm. You're going to get poked. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so a good example. Just, that's just another example. Yeah. That's a great example. Now, what about when these kids become adults? Like what are some, I guess, negative side effects of this parenting style for the kid? Like when they're in the workforce or in relationships, mm-hmm. all of this stuff transfers 
to, you know, you're, you're not going to be the go-getter potentially at work in the sense of thinking outside, well, how can I make this job better, flow more efficiently? You're going to be the person, you're going to be the worker bee. You're going to get it done. And that's fine. We need worker bees. There's not a problem with that, but it's not going to be, you know, the Steve Jobs creating things that visionaries, you know, there's going to be a lack of that. Often there is significant difficulties in relationships um, because it is, you're used to being told what to do. And, and the unfortunate aspect is that, especially for girls is you're, you know, you're highly successful. You have often some self-esteem and individuals who have a narcissistic personality, uh, thrive on these type of individuals who appear confident and then they come in with their shaming and their belittling and all of these really unhealthy um, ways of relating. And an individual who was raised in a tiger family will hear that stuff. And a portion of that is going to sound familiar. And they're going to go, oh, and they might find comfort in that. He's telling me that my makeup or my dress looks ugly. I should go change, trying to help me be better, whereas he's not actually trying to help you better yourself. So you can get sucked into some really toxic relationships mm. uh, and unhealthy ones. Uh, stress, anxiety, depression, suicide, uh, uh, paralysis, fear of failure can become so great that you never leave your house, that you never really go out and explore. Uh, another can be that you never leave your family of origin, your nuclear family. Your <clears throat> every holiday is spent with them. You do always what they say, and then when they, you know, when you live so long and they die, you are, I guess, what somewhat released of their pressure or whatever that is. But then there's a huge sense of loss. What do I do with my life? I don't have my parents kind of guiding or telling me uh, the next step to take. So there can be some uh, codependency issues as well. Wow. I mean, that's really deep, like everything that you're saying. I think a lot of people probably don't realize the repercussions of, of this style of parenting. I do want to talk about helicopter parenting as well and just give some pros and cons also. But can you get a, give a couple more examples of what a helicopter mom might look like? Yes, this is the so think of a toddler who's just learning to walk and they are in a field of beautiful, lush green grass. And you have two parents and you have one mom who's sitting there, maybe enjoying the sunshine. Their kid is toddling off kind of maybe 15 feet away, 10 feet away, exploring, right? Mm -hmm. And they fall down, no big deal. The helicopter mom, you're going to spot her a mile away or him. They are literally standing over their toddler, hands out, ready to catch them. Maybe they even have um, a leash. Now, I did sometimes put a leash on my kids when they were little. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially if they're runners. Or if they don't listen and they're going to go hurt themselves in traffic. And sometimes when they're just learning to walk, it can be helpful if so if they fall, they don't smack something that is unsundry, you know, maybe mm -hmm. if they're on cement or something. But if they're in the grass, you don't need to hover. You don't need a leash. Let them fall. Let them go. Uh, that would be a helicopter mom. Another helicopter mom might be, you know, you say your daughter's a teenager or a tween and they're having a sleepover at somebody else's house. And you just come by just to check on everybody or oh, she forgot her favorite blanket, or uh, you, you try to insert yourself into what they're doing all the time, even if they're not in your home or around your house. And if they are, you're constantly watching them. I think I've, I've heard you speak about kids or teens, tweens, when they say they're bored, and you said that's a good thing, actually, for them to be bored. Now, do you say that because they should try to find something to do on their own during that time? Like, why do you say it's a good thing that they should be bored? 
Well, creativity is, um, research has shown too, creativity, people who are creative are often healthier well-beings. It, it, it's attributed to wellness. And uh, one, it, it's a huge trait. And so learning to be bored, knowing what to do when to be bored is so important. And just sitting still. How many of us have sat still for at least five, 10 minutes and just done nothing? It's the hardest exercise to do, right? Right. And so one of the things that we want to teach our children is that one, it's okay to not do anything. And two, that when you're not doing anything, so much learning is going on, so much more observation and awareness. We talk about mindfulness and we talk about self-discipline. And um, those who can sit and just create or just be is so important for your mind, body, and soul. And and it's a great exercise. And maybe it is starting with your little ones sitting around and, and just playing I spy. Or maybe what do you see around you? It doesn't mean that you have to be so silent. It's just that you have to be able to let your body rest. And and, and co- children who come to you saying, I'm bored, don't try to enable them and giving them things to do. It's really important to, oh, you are bored. Thank you for sharing that. Now go off and try to find something to do and come back and check in with me and let me know what you found. And so it's really important to teach them how to create, how to build, how to work with their imagination. And same with teens and tweens. Just because they're bored doesn't mean they have to do something. It's a great time for them to rest and relax, listen to some music, find things that are a little bit more leisure and recreational to do. Right. Because the the question that you've asked contains the very answer, the holy grail, if you will, as far as sibling rivalry um, and all of the relationships around that are concerned. And so without fail, every single time there is the dynamic of sibling rivalry emerging, whether it is a very significant disruptive dynamic that really actually um, demands some professional support or just sort of a more kind of uh, typical dynamic that um, presents in a home. Always, 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 always. The root cause is going to be to do with the relationship between one or the other parent and one or the other of the children. And so you always, as a parent, whether it's a very significant thing or just something you're sort of keeping your eye on, must retreat to that root cause. You have to not be concerned about the relationship between the siblings, but rather get very focused on the relationship Uh, between yourself and each of your children, and uh, if there's another parent involved, between that parent and each of the children, because that's where we're going to actually begin to uh, repair the sibling relationship. It's via the parent-child relationship. At least just the parents should at least just start off and see what role is this, where are we as a family? What, What does our health look like? And then next, it really is you, 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 you have to sit down and talk to your teen. And guess what? There is a fallacy out there, a lie out there, that teenagers don't want to hear anything from their parents. And I think that is an absolute lie that I want to debunk right now. Teenagers want to hear their parents' input on things. They want it. You are the adult that has been with them forever. You understand them. You've lived your life. They, there's no one else on the planet that has lived um, 
life with that set of DNA, a similar DNA to them than you. They want to be connected to their parent. Now, where I feel the, the disconnect is, is that parents, they um, sometimes feel the, the approach to the conversation. And that's where I, um, understanding that these are young people that are growing into their individuality. They're growing into being a, to a, adults. You definitely want to approach the conversation with, with the understanding that you're talking to a person that's almost an adult. So really um, going to them for, I actually have an Instagram post that I, I have on there with my son. Um, one of them, I maybe out of frustration, I turned to my son and said, you're fat, you're overweight, and you need to lose some weight right now. And then I have him exploding into a ball of fire. <laughs> and then the next scene, I, I do the whole thing, the whole scene over. And I said, Hey son, I'm really concerned about your health. Do you have any time later that we can talk? You see the difference. Yeah, in that. Right. Right. The difference is that I tell their, my concern, I tell whatever I have observed specifically, and I didn't just jump on them assuming that they have nothing else to do right this moment than talk about their weight. No, I respect their adult that they have a time, they have schedule, maybe there's stuff that they want to do. Maybe a conversation like that is going to frazzle them and they need time to prepare. So I, I set an actual time to sit down and talk with them. At least they know that this is what we're going to talk about at six o'clock on Sunday. And we sit down and have a real conversation. That's good. Yeah. And it's good that you mentioned that teens do want to hear from their parents because as parents, it's hard to know if your child actually wants to hear from you. But that makes sense that they actually want to hear from you, but your approach has to be in line, I guess, with how they're going to receive that information from you. Exactly. Your approach needs to be like you're approaching an adult. Yeah. You need to approach them like somebody, I won't even say, <laughs> not a peer, because they really aren't your peer. Yeah. But still, it's, it's an art that you can learn. Yeah. And as long as you really just sit back and respect, respect their time, respect their sense of individuality and independence. That's good. And have a, and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So have let, a conversation with them. Yeah. So let's say you've got that scheduled time. So now it's time to talk to them about their obesity. Like how would a parent gently broach that subject? Because it's very sensitive. They might already be insecure about it. Maybe people are teasing them or like you don't know what they're going through because they don't share everything with you. So how would you gently like lead into that conversation? Like what would you do? I would just say start off with what you just said. How do you, how are you feeling about this? Because you've already told them what the subject is going to be. About their health, right. Yeah, they already know what it's going to be about. So you, you, you start off with a leader, uh, open a very open-ended question. I think the first thing to distinguish is there's a difference between shyness and social anxiety. Social anxiety is not just shyness. In fact, they're completely different. A child who is shy may be shy to unfamiliar people and unfamiliar situation. And eventually, once they get used to the situation or the person, they warm up to, the, to, to um, those triggers. For a person with social anxiety, they can actually be very comfortable in 
um, unfamiliar situations or with unfamiliar people. However, what they fear is being judged. And they're constantly thinking about what other people are thinking of them. They fear being embarrassed. They fear being socially awkward. They fear being perceived negatively. They fear being criticized. So that is really what social anxiety disorder means. Okay. So because they have this fear, what is that preventing them from doing? Like, are they just shutting down and not speaking? Like, what what could that look like for someone who's having those phobias? For someone who is on the very severe end of social anxiety, they can be completely silent. They can be exhibiting a lot of physiological symptoms, such as their heart is racing, their hands are shaky, they're trembling, they're blushing, um, which, again, will... Um, actually make them feel even more embarrassed. So those are just some of the symptoms that a person with social anxiety can exhibit. The important thing to remember, again, is that the person is constantly fearing being judged negatively. And therefore, even if they are in a familiar situation, um, they can feel like other people are looking at them in a way that that person might be judging them. They can feel like other people are constantly zooming in on them. So it's almost like, you know, when we were teenagers and let's say we have a pimple, right? And Mm -hmm. when we go to school, what is it that we think? Everyone can see that pimple, right? Mm -hmm. Now, a person with social anxiety would feel that way even without that pimple, they constantly feel like all attention is on them. It's, it's what I actually call reverse narcissism. So a person with narcissism is constantly trying to put attention onto themselves because they actually have a deflated sense of self, right? Actually, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, they have an inflated sense of self. Oh, right. However, a person with social anxiety has a complete opposite. They're always trying to push the attention away from themselves because they have a deflated sense of self. So it's, in, so it's what I call reverse narcissism. So what we like to emphasize for moms is that they first and foremost um, ha- check in with themselves and say to themselves, how am I feeling? You know, what is my mood like? Have I been sleeping okay? Have I been eating okay? Have I been down? Have I been tearful at the drop of a hat? Have I been irritable at the drop of a hat? Have I been overwhelmed by everything and feel like I'm losing control? Have I had a panic attack? Um, Have I been functioning? Have I been oversleeping? Have I been undersleeping? And that's one of the first things that we like to see is, how to do a self-assessment because so many times people are just running, 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 taking care of everything that they don't even know if they're feeling exhausted or not. And so we really like to start with people checking in on themselves, on their own emotional health. And then if you start saying, you know what, something might not be right with me. I'm really not handling things as well as I normally do. I'm, I'm, I'm really sad. I'm really apathetic. I'm really withdrawn that sort of thing, we encourage people to first start out with self-care. 
self-care is the first strategy for managing through um, any emotional or psychological situation. Um, so what I mean by self-care is a good, healthy regimen of exercise um, that creates endorphins, which helps exercise um, pick up our mood. I mean, eating nutritiously, drinking water, meditating, practicing mindfulness, those kind of things to make sure that you're getting adequate amounts of sleep. That's so critical, making sure that you're getting eight to nine hours of sleep every night. Um, and I know that can be hard when you've got toddlers especially, but um, definitely trying to get that sleep. Now, if you put all those things in place and are maniacal about your self-care regimen and still you're having symptoms, that might be the time that you want to reach out to a therapist and seek professional help. And you can access therapy in many ways. Sometimes people can go and talk to someone at their church, their clergy, um, and that can be sometimes a, a good way to access services. Um, sometimes folks can call their employee assistance program um, and have somebody to talk about if they're stressed out about a divorce or or money or something like that, a precipitant, but they're just not able to kind of get over it. Um, uh, uh, so, so, so EAP, um, sometimes on the back of your insurance card, uh, your private insurance card, if you've got insurance, blessed enough to have insurance, then you can um, call your insurance card and they usually have a behavioral health hotline. Um, and then if you don't have insurance, um, community mental health centers provide psychiatric and psychological services for people who need to talk to someone. And then there's always our frontline organizations that we love so much, community service organizations. Those are also first places to go if people are having problems figuring out how to do it. There are also a lot of great new online technologies. Um, there are apps and things um, for uh, mood um, that people are using now. So you can also uh, get an online therapist. And for people who are in Gen X and Gen Y who are comfortable with texting, they've got texting and chat modalities. They've got te televisits. Um, so there's lots of different modalities and ways to access services if talking to someone is what you need. Um, now, if it gets a little heavier than that, um, and so, you know, if, if talk therapy isn't going to be enough, um, then you may need to see either, oh, the other person is your primary care physician, going to your primary care physician, your regular family doc, and telling them, doc, I'm stressed out. Can you help me find a therapist? Um, but if you're having more trouble than that and more difficulty than that, you may end up getting referred to a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Um, generally speaking, most disorders that people have, which is the anxiety and depression that we've been focused on, can be treated by your primary care physician. Generally, the more, um, the more serious disorders where you would need to see a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Um, so most people can get services through their primary care doctor and their very straightforward, easy medications that work um, and that can really help calm anxiety that's gotten disproportionate and lift that mood up. People have been down for, for too long and too long in the words of a mental health therapist and a, a psychologist is two weeks. 
if it's been over two weeks and you've had a persistently low mood and you can't get out of it and it's worse than a funk and there's no real true outside precipitant, that's the time when you need to kind of say, hey, wait a minute. I need to kind of think about whether or not. And one thing for sure, if you're starting to have feelings of giving up, starting to have feelings of losing hope, starting to have feelings that it's not worth it at all, you absolutely need to get help at that point. Typically, we engage our teenager by saying, you know, cut it out. You look fine. This is ridiculous. Like, why don't you just leave yourself more time in the morning? And you know how that's going to what, what they're going to respond back with. They're going to leave me alone and you don't get it. And you're so mean and I hate you. And there's going to be a whole kind of escalation, right? And the more they escalate, the more upset we're going to be. Don't you talk to me like that. This is, you know, horrible behavior. I never talked to my parents like this. If I ever did, there'd be, and you end up with this kind of explosion. Now, one of the brain things that's really important here is because the teenage brain is underdeveloped, it's still developing. Part of how they regulate is by getting us mad. Okay, so when they get us mad and we are not neutral, they get a blast of adrenaline. Adrenaline is a stimulant, just like ADHD medication. So they get a blast of adrenaline, which lights up their frontal lobe, helping that brain to do the job that it needs to do, move through a task, take perspective, all of the things that, all of those executive functioning um, tasks the brain needs to do. So they often get us really mad, get a jolt of adrenaline and feel a little better and can move on with their day. And then we're dish rags on the floor. So we have to make sure that we're not sucked into that rate, you know, as a, as a way that our kids use to regulate their own brain. So let's go back to the hair example. Look at my hair. It's so ugly. I can't go to school. Big trigger for us as parents, right? What do you mean you can't go to school? Put a hat on. You gotta go to school. So now you gotta ground yourself. You've taken a breath. You've like, decided you're going to respond to your child instead of react. And you say, you know what? You look beautiful to me. And I, but I know you don't want to hear that. And I get it. Your hair just seems to have a mood of its own. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. You have an exact idea of how you want it to look today. It is not cooperating. Now what happens is you're called, yeah, now your child's nodding and going, yeah, it's I have the stupidest hair. And now you're having a conversation where you're getting your child. You're not talking them out of anything. Cause if you try to talk them out of it, they're going to talk you into it. That's how it works. They're now getting oxytocin and serotonin, which are reward chemicals that flood the brain, bringing the brain out of fight or flight and into a oxytocin-based conversation. And as, as much as this sounds like it's so silly, honestly, it is a superpower. When you learn how to do this, two or three statements will calm your child right down. They might want to hug. They may go, fine. And then they'll huff and they'll be downstairs. But you'll get your child downstairs feeling better by connecting that way versus getting mad and starting to threaten them and you're going to be late and you do this to me all the time and blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. If they get really ugly, if it's really awful, there can be a consequence and you can deliver that consequence in a really loving way. You know, I love you and I love you enough to, for you to be mad at me, but because you did this, this, and this, now here's the consequence. Um, you're mean, I hate you, I know, and I love you enough for you to be mad at me. I'm, I, I believe in you, I know that you can do better than this, and you're a good person, and it's my job to be your frontal lobe, it's my job to help you make good decisions, and that's the consequence. So the more neutral and the more calm you can stay, the more they start to regulate. Mm. And do you give them the consequence in that moment, or do you think that might escalate the situation? That would escalate. I usually recommend front-loading that. So let's say the whole morning was a nightmare and she was rude and nasty and, and it didn't go well. 
later that day you go back and you, you can repair. So let's say you lost it too. And it just was ugly. It was just a whole bunch of ugly. You can later in the day use the calm technique, which I'll break down in a second. Sorry, I realize I haven't broken that down yet. Um, and say, so you know what, this morning when you were freaking out about your hair and I got so mad and I was just shouting at you to hurry up, I didn't stop and think about what that felt like for you to look in the mirror, not like what you see. It, it's such an intense environment and you, you think everyone's looking at you and I get it. And I was so angry this morning. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to understand the next time that happens. But if you get really nasty and start saying the things that you said, you know, I love you enough to, to set some pretty loving limits here. You're going to lose your phone for 24 hours or 48 hours. I don't like having parents take away things for two weeks and a month. It's too much. It, it, it's too, it's too heavy a consequence for the situation. And it's much better that you take it away for a short time. Then they get it back. If they repeat the same behavior, they lose it again. They still might lose it for a month, but yeah. it will be because time they chose that behavior. Right. So let me, let me break down the, the calm technique. The first thing you're going to do is see that's where you're going to connect. That's where you're going to try to find your 16 year old self who was having a bad hair day or couldn't go to that party or was overwhelmed by school, whatever it is that they're, they're yelling about. Um, find that place inside where you can connect with their, with your 16 year old self. Then you put your agenda aside and then you match their affect. So if she's screaming about her hair, instead of saying, you look beautiful, what are you talking about? It looks the same as it did yesterday, which is going to make them go, no, I didn't. You don't know what you're talking about. And you have to say that you're my mother. Um, you're going to say something like, you know what? You do look beautiful, but I can see that you, this is not turning out the way you want. You had a very specific idea of how you wanted your hair to look. And it doesn't look like that. See, can you hear the urgency in my voice? Mm-hmm. That's what gets reflected back, showing your teenager that you get it. You get it. You're not trying to argue with them. You're not trying to talk them out of it. You get it. There's empathy there. That's when you get the release of those beautiful reward chemicals. And that's when the conversation can start to de-escalate. It's a superpower. I'm not kidding. Thanks for listening to Time Out with Tinseltown Mom. If you liked what you heard today, please be so kind and rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next year, bye.